0: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we've just heard it sung over us, this is the cry of our hearts that today by some measure of our songs, by some measure of this teaching, the opportunity for us just to open up your word, we would have the ability to to give you the praise and the adoration that you deserve, to give you thanks. God, there's, there's no way in which we can truly capture that in words there's no way that we can truly express it with all that you deserve but we are grateful this morning we are grateful for all that you've done we are grateful for all that you do through christ and so we pray that now your spirit would be here you would awaken us you would encourage us you would stir us to a greater love and devotion to you so we commit this time now to you to your glory and to your praise we give you thanks in jesus name amen amen man wonderful to hear the the team lead us in worship this morning. Hope everybody's doing great so far this fine Sunday morning. Everybody doing well? It's good to see you all. It was a great week of camp. I had a great time getting a chance to hang out with folks along the way, as it was mentioned earlier in the service. Uh, Spent the first part of this past week hanging out with the youth up in New Mexico. Uh, It was really challenging to endure the 70-degree weather and the mountainous views. So we really appreciate your prayers. That was great. We needed it to get through. Um, but then I left early <clears throat> and came back to go through first and second grade camp. Now, that we did need prayers for. Sleeping with 30 sick first graders or whatever in the middle of a cabin was, was quite the undertaking. But I had a blast with my son and the other first and second graders at Camp Copas on Friday and Saturday. And as we mentioned earlier, we've got a lot of children and young families down at Riverbend right now finishing off children's camp. And so we want to continue to pray for them. Uh, For a meaningful camp experience. And as I mentioned last time, the hope is that as as we talk about these things and see these, that those are um, tangible signs of our church's desire to be a place where families are valued, that we're going to really invest in people of all ages, children in particular, to give them a meaningful opportunity to encounter this amazing God that we serve. And so we're grateful for those opportunities, grateful for the leaders that made them possible, and uh, excited to see what God's doing in the lives of those those young kids. So that being said, we got a lot to do today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab your your book there and turn to Jonah chapter 3. Can you believe it or not? We're actually in chapter 3 now after so many weeks in chapter 2. And and this is where we kind of return to the story, if you will. Uh, We talked about that a little bit last week, that you look in verse 10 of chapter 2 and things begin to shift. And so we're going to be able to transition out of this prayer a little bit and into the stories It picks back up in chapter 3. But before we get to that, let me just kind of give you a little bit of a preview of where we are in this series, okay? We're going to dedicate about three Sundays to chapter 3 that includes this one, and then we'll dedicate two Sundays to chapter 4, all right? So we're almost there, y'all. We just got like five more messages here for Jonah, and then we will finish this series, which has been a, a fun one for me. I hope you've enjoyed it as well, but, but also remarkable about that is that by the time we finish, that means school's back in session. Believe it or not, we're getting ready to start school, so just as equally remarkable is the fact that summer is almost over, and so it's, it's something for us to savor while we still can. Now, when we finished uh, looking at chapter 2 last week, we saw this transition in verse 10, right, that the story had picked back up after looking at this prayer that Jonah had prayed from inside the belly of the fish. Verse 10 says, the Lord commanded the great fish and he vomited Jonah out of his mouth onto dry land. Fascinating verse, remarkable verse. But with that, we saw that, that things were starting up again, right, that Jonah was back kind of where he had started to begin with. We kind of saw this reset button. And so the question we asked last week was, well, what What changed? What, what led God to say, okay, now Jonah's ready to try this again? And we looked in particular in verses 8 and 9 at the conclusion of his prayer and asked the question, what does it look like to have a ready heart? Right, that as we saw how Jonah went through this transformation in his prayer, we saw different um, signs or, or indicators of this transformed heart that Jonah now had that we saw in verses 8 and 9. And so the five things that we identified last week right, was that a ready heart knows what really matters, Right? We, we never choose the world over God's love. Right? The way Jonah talked about it was clinging to worthless idols and forsaking God's love. So, so a heart that's ready always knows what really matters and never chooses the world over God's love. A ready heart is joyful, right, with grateful praise, with shouts of praise. It, no matter what we're going through, we always have the reason to foster that, that posture of joy and gratitude in our lives. A ready heart is willing to sacrifice, Willing to sacrifice our dreams, our ambitions, our biases, our prejudices. Whatever it is, a ready heart is willing to sacrifice whatever it's going to take. ready heart is willing to commit Right, what I have vowed I will make good to the Lord. And so it's not just lip service. That phrase, I will make good, means I will see it through. I will complete this. And so a ready heart is willing to, to not just offer that lip service, but to live it out and to commit. And then finally, a ready heart always declares the salvation of the Lord. Right, so those are the five things that we saw evidence in Jonah's life, this transition that, that made God say, okay, now you're ready. And so with that as context, the question for us today is, is how does a ready heart transform into a life of obedience? And in particular, what we're going to see in this question of obedience today is not just what does it mean to be obedient, but, but obedience in the midst of waiting, there's, that's a kind of a unique perspective to what we see at the beginning of chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, let's start in verse 1 with this mindset of obedience. And we're going to have several things that we can learn from it in these first five verses. <clears throat> so starting in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. The fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Okay, uh, several things that I want to point out to you. If you are paying attention, uh, then what you will notice is that the beginning of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 1 are almost identical right? There are some subtle differences, but you have a very similar beginning, especially these first three verses. Look at the first two, right? If you go back to chapter one, if you just hung a left and and just went back a page, you would see the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, right? And so you have this this reminder of something that we already talked about when we first began this series, which is that God reveals himself through his spoken word. And in this particular story, he has specified Jonah. He is revealing it to Jonah. So we don't need to to rehash the significance of God's revelation and the, the main characters of this story, but you see a very similar beginning in chapter 3. Now, you also see in chapter 1 verse 2 that this command has been offered, right? Rise up and go to the important city of Nineveh because its wickedness has not escaped my notice is what you see there. Now, you don't have a reference to wickedness here in chapter 3. You don't have that reference, but you have the same elements of the command. What were the three, it was a three-pronged command. What were the three things? Rise up, go preach. Right? Those were the things that were, were offered to Jonah. And so again, chapter three, verse two, rise up, go preach. So it's, it's almost the exact same beginning of what you have, which is what leads us to say, this really is a reset button. This is God saying, Let, let's try this again. And the emphasis is on that phrase in verse one, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Right this is this is the parent saying hey maybe you didn't hear me the first time let's try this again do, do I need to did I stutter the first time like let's let's work through this one more time and so the question i have for us is when we see those similarities in those first two verses is very simple what's the significance of that what what are the implications of these mirror images well part of what we need to see is that at this point what we're seeing in the book of Jonah is that Jonah's attempt right, to, to run away from the Lord has failed, right? The simple message that we get here is that God cannot be ignored, right? All of his, his efforts, every plan that he had, his decision to go down to Joppa to find a, a ship with a crew that wasn't filled with Israelites, polytheists that believed in other gods, his desire to, to go to the bottom below the deck, and then when the storm arises, even saying, throw me overboard, willing to sacrifice his own life, even being swallowed by fish, none of it had worked. He was right back where he started. You cannot ignore God. Now you can try, right? And many of us do. Some of us for longer seasons than others. You can go your whole life running from the Lord, right? But this is Psalm 139 in action. Whether you go to the highest heights or the lowest depths, wherever you go, he is there. You cannot ignore God. And so many times we try to, whether it's those, those little promptings that say go and help that person or go and speak to your neighbor or go and provide that assistance or it's something much more significant about an overall relationship where he keeps drawing you to himself and you keep turning your back and you keep running from the things that he's asking for. You keep running from this life of surrender. God cannot be ignored. Right, the Bible is very clear. 2 Corinthians right, talks about that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for everything we've done in our life, whether good or bad. So obedience matters. How you respond to the Lord matters. You cannot ignore him. Now, you can try it your whole life. But again, the scriptures are clear. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's just a matter of when. You cannot ignore him. Jonah has realized his attempt to run from the Lord are futile. You can't escape God. The second implication of this kind of similar starting point is that now Jonah is more ready. And part of the reason for his readiness is that he himself has now directly received, right, the mercy that he has been asked to go share, right? Before, Jonah anticipated that God was going to extend some form of mercy to Nineveh, and he didn't want any part of it. Right? And so he rebels, and then in his rebellion, he is emblematic of the same disobedience that the Ninevites had been living in their own lives. So he runs away from the Lord, is deserving of death, but what happens? God rescues him, gives him mercy. So his direct experience is now conditioned to better understand who God is in this message he's about to share. So here's the, the lesson for us in that. We're all going to have mistakes, we're all going to have failures, and what the devil's going to want to try to do is to get us to conceal those things, right, to bury them somewhere deep inside and not let anybody know, because if anybody found out about that, the shame, the horror, the judgment that would happen if they found out about those things. So we, we keep them quiet, right? They, we think they discredit who we are, what God has done, when in fact, when we entrust them to the Lord, we see the depth of his rescue. We see the depth of his mercy, and then that better equips us to share that message with someone else who goes through similar struggles, similar challenges. We talk about this all the time. Your story matters. This is a place where it's okay to come in with our failures, with our failings, and say, yes, God saved me even from this. Save me from depression. Save me from addiction. Save me from anxiety, whatever it is. And then that becomes a word of encouragement to those who are battling the same thing. Jonah had experienced firsthand God's rescue. And now he was ready to share that same message of mercy to the Ninevites. Right? So you see this this transformation, this mirror image. And so as a result, there's a difference, a stark difference in verse 3 that begins to show us the level of obedience that Jonah is now prepared to exhibit. In chapter 1, you get to verse 3 and it says, So Jonah ran away from the Lord and went to Tarshish. But now with a readied and transformed heart, same word, same command, Jonah obeyed the Lord and went to Nineveh. Totally different response in in verse 3, chapter 3. And so it's this message of obedience. Here's what I think is significant about it. As I said earlier, it's a three-pronged command of obedience. Rise up, go, preach. In verse 3, we see that Jonah fulfills at least the first two of those commands. Because the word obey is the same word as rise up that you see when The Lord exhibits this command earlier in the passages. He he has risen up. He has stood up. He has prepared for action. Rise up and go. Jonah rose up and went. He was obedient, right? He was ready to move in the direction that God asked him. And so with with that on display, the question that I want us to, to ask ourselves today is, are our lives marked and measured by a similar form of obedience, Right? Do you, when you think about your life, are you able to say that, yes, I, I seek obedience in all things? Right? That's, that's the question that I want us to wrestle with, is if your life is truly marked by obedience. Right? It's not enough for us just to subscribe to certain things and talk and in language, but do we actually obey what God has asked us to obey? And that's part of what I want us to wrestle with this, this morning. Now, here's the unique twist to it that I think we see in this particular passage in these five verses that it's not just obedience but it's obedience in the midst of waiting okay I want to want to explain that to you because here's how it transitions as we begin to transition through verse three we see this shift that's pretty important for chapter three Jonah begins to slowly fade into the background and Nineveh becomes a central part of the chapter right and much of chapter three is all about Nineveh right and then we'll see Jonah re- reemerge on the scene in chapter four and so with that shift, we have this kind of description that, that brings us into this idea of obedience and waiting. Here's the first indicator of that. It says, now Nineveh was a great city. and It was a three days journey. Well, what is the significance of that? Well, there's a lot of ways in which you could interpret that description of Nineveh, right? It, it could mean that it literally takes three days to get from one end to the other. Could be that this is just the way that the author is describing the breadth of the city, right? It's going to take you three days to get through it. Could be that this was the normal pace of business, right? This, this wasn't a city where you could just do a day trip, right? That you needed to arrive and have day one to get settled, day two to at least conduct your business, day three then to wrap up and then leave for whatever reasons. So it could be that maybe it wasn't about the breadth of the city, ge- geographically speaking, but, but maybe just population density or the way it was laid out, that it was going to take three days to speak to this section and then this section and then this section. Right, that he was going to have to divide his time to make sure everyone heard the message. There's a lot of ways to, to understand that. But I would argue that regardless of how you apply it to the description of Nineveh, there's a greater implication. There's greater significance that we can draw from it. And, and what I want us to see is that God uses this duration, in particular three days, with great intentionality throughout the scriptures. And it carries some pretty significant, some pretty great significance because what we're seeing with Jonah in this particular situation is that this isn't a, a task that he's just going to be able to scratch off his list real quick. It's not just send an email. It's not just say a message, right? This isn't a momentary um, opportunity for obedience. This is going to require some duration to it. He's going to have to be obedient not just for a moment but for three days. Now this is similar Uh, in other parts of the scripture. Like think think for some other very notable parts of of the Bible, right? Let's go to Abraham. When God calls to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your only son whom you love, Isaac. What does God tell Abraham to do? He says, go and sacrifice him in the region of Moriah, right? Now, as you read through that story in Genesis, what, what you discover is that Moriah is not just in Abraham's backyard. It's not just down the block. How long does it take to get there? Three days. So imagine that for a moment. Abraham, with the anxiety of knowing he was going to have to sacrifice his one and only son, the son of this promise, had to carry that burden for three days. He had to move in obedience for at least three days, knowing that that's where it was leading. He had an opportunity day after day to say, you know what, I'm not going to follow through with this. I've changed my mind. I'm not going. Let's go back. Three days he carried that burden before God revealed what he really had intended. Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish. Right now, probably day one, he realizes I'm not dead and he's grateful, right? And we see that evidence in his prayer, but he has to stay there. He stays in this darkened area, this area of discomfort, of concern, of angst. He is not immediately released despite the salvation that the fish had brought. For three days, he remains in the belly. Now, He's been given this command that he has resisted and he's not gonna be able to get out of it easily for three days, he's gonna have to carry this message. And all of this obviously points to the significance that Jesus himself highlights when he speaks of Jonah, right? When he says a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah who spent three days, three nights in the belly of the fish in the same way so will the son of man spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, right? Which obviously points to the crucifixion The burial and resurrection. And so think about that. Jesus hangs on the cross in agony. And his followers, his disciples, his closest friends see him in that agony. They see him die. They see him laid in the tomb and the stone rolled to cover the entrance. And they carry that disappointment. They carry that grief through Friday and into Saturday. They have to, to maintain something to get them through those three days before they see God's rescue. Think of Paul. Think of Paul, right? Or maybe I should say Saul, right? Saul, in his murderous ways, goes on the road to Damascus, and then he encounters this light, encounters uh, Christ. He says, why do you persecute me? Well, who are you, Lord? Well, I'm Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. And so Paul's immediately, Saul's immediately blinded by the light, and how long does he have to wait? Three days before we see Saul become Paul. there's significance, what we see is that God's rescue takes time. We live in a society in a world that desires instant gratification. Let me see it immediately. Let me see the fruit of my labor, the results of your promises. Let me see it all instantaneously. But over and over again, we see that God's rescue takes time. We have to find obedience even in the midst of the waiting. And so I I would venture to guess that today many of you are in here Going through similar situations of angst, facing some form of of trial, some form of stress, some form of of anxiety or persecution, where you find yourself praying to the Lord, Lord, relieve me from this. Save me from this. And you need to be reminded, God's rescue takes time. And so the, the call of a follower is to be obedient, even in the waiting. All right, so this three days journey carries with it some significance, and it's not just Jonah that's going to have to wait. We see that, yes, even Nineveh is going to have to wait and figure out what obedience in the midst of waiting looks like. Now, theirs is going to be slightly different, all right? And we see that with the message that Jonah shares with the Ninevites because now we see him fulfill the third part of the command. He actually preaches, and he says, what, 40 more days, then Nineveh will be overthrown, okay? And so 40, 40 days is an expression for, you know, a duration of time, and, and we see the chief characteristic here that the promise is that Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That's a word that means to, to change, to turn over, literally to, to destroy. Okay, this is a word that's been attached to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, there's a lot of cities that you might want to aspire to in the Old Testament. Sodom and Gomorrah is not one of them. Okay? When, so, when you're starting to get the same sort of threats of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know that you've gone down a wayward path. So, they have this threat of destruction. And it's a really significant message. Now, How do we understand it? Because what you should notice when you read this message is that there are no conditions. There's no if statements. It's not, hey, in 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown if you don't stop being rebellious, right? There there is no if. It's gonna happen. It's very direct. So so how should we understand that? and, And how would have they understood that in that point in time? Well, there's an important way for us to understand Prophecy. I want to read this to you. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. Anytime we understand a word of prophecy that comes to uh, to our attention in the Old Testament, there's the great description of it that we get from Jeremiah chapter 18. Let me read it to you, verse 7 and 8. It says, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster. I have planned. Okay, so there's, there's the Lord himself in, in Jeremiah chapter 18 saying, now listen, when I offer these words of destruction, when I offer these threats, it should be known that if you repent, there is an opportunity that I will not exact this destruction that I've promised. I will relent. Okay, so so even though Jonah's message doesn't have an explicit condition attached to it, we would understand it in that time period and as we read it to be conditional, that there is an opportunity for them to pursue repentance. But make no mistake, it is a direct threat of destruction. And so as I was reading through that, I felt like it would be worthwhile for you and I to stop and consider this morning, what are the things in our lives that threaten to overthrow us? Those things that threaten to destroy us, those things that make us feel as if our life is coming undone. And there's a couple different ways in which we could answer that question. We could look at it from an individual point of view. Right, that, that sometimes we go through life with such um, trial and tribulation that it feels like our life is coming apart. Sometimes by our own brokenness, sometimes by the brokenness around us. Right, it can be the, the financial stress that we sometimes feel and, and the losing of control. It could be through relationships. Right, going through these, these broken and fractured relationships with a spouse or with children that just begin to undo us. Or we have the diagnosis in a doctor's office that makes us feel as if our life is on borrowed time and we become overwhelmed with all these things that we experience as if we feel like our life is being overthrown. What are those things that threaten you? And while we need to think about it from an individual perspective, we also need to recognize that this word was not just to individuals, it was to a city. It's to a community. And so sometimes we need to step back and not just think as individuals, but think corporately. What is it that threatens us as a community? So when we pose that question in our setting, there's a couple of different ways that we could look at this from a corporate standpoint. Could be as a nation. What is it that threatens us as a nation? And we'd be quick to, to point to the things that we see in the news, right? Hacking attempts from Russia, trade wars, terrorism. We, we could We could point to those things and be concerned about it, but I would argue today that our consideration probably needs to turn not so much to the threats that are without our country, but from within, right, within our own boundaries and borders, because what gives me concern is the division that I sense and hear so consistently in our culture through rhetoric, hostility, a lot of times through through politics, right? We, we, we throw these labels of left and right, liberal, conservative, and we use them to levy attacks and to discredit people, and then we, we have this vitriol and this angst against each other, and it begins to fracture any sense of camaraderie and unity that we once had. Civility begins to be just tossed by the wayside. We see it not just politically, we see it racially, right? Discussions of different ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures, and we begin to use Slurs and prejudices and all these different things that reveal this division that exists within us. Those things seem to be legitimate threats that could, could destroy us in meaningful ways. But, but maybe it's not just important for us to stop and consider it through the lens as a country, but as the church. Not necessarily UBC, but the church in America, our, our church and our culture in this time. What are the things that threaten us? Well, I would say we've learned from these same threats that we're seeing in culture. Same words of division amongst brothers and sisters where we take the same terms and label it left and right, liberal, conservative, and when we see somebody on the other side fall, we celebrate rather than trying to restore a brother or sister in Christ. We think about the the deeds or the greeds that we have, not just in culture, but again in our churches pursuits of materialism, pursuits of lust, pursuits of abuses of power, just as evident in the church as they are in the culture. The point is, no one's above failing. Anyone can be overthrown. This sin can eat away at any of us, whether individually or institutionally, and we have to take it seriously. So my hope and my prayer this morning is that when we look at a passage like this, it awakens us to consider our threats. Now what's gonna really determine how we respond to it is whether or not we view these threats, these concerns, these risks to be credible. Right, that's typically how we determine whether or not we're, we're really going to respond to a threat. Let, let me give you an example. Right? Let's take natural disasters for a moment. Okay? Raise your hand if you're afraid of a hurricane coming in here through Fort Worth. Anyone? Okay, a couple people. We'll, we'll talk about it later. Uh, young first graders, it's okay. Um, how many of you are worried about an earthquake happening in Fort Worth? Anyone? All right, okay, same first graders. How many people are worried about tornadoes? right? Okay, there you go. A few more. Why? Because we're in tornado country, and we've spent most of our lives being groomed on how to prepare for the threat of tornado, right? You go through elementary school, and you go through these drills where you're told to go to the inner part of the building, get away from windows, and all those different things in case of a tornado, right? So so we know that's a credible threat. Here's the problem. We're so conditioned in how to respond to that warning that a lot of times it now starts to fall on deaf ears, doesn't it? So like, so like now you have these tornado sirens that go off that literally means seek shelter. But I'm curious, how many of you the first time you hear, the first time you hear a tornado siren actually go like to the inner room in your house, the bathroom, whatever, and seek shelter? How many do it the first time? That's what I thought, like nobody, right? Why is that? Because you're like, nah, I've heard that before, right? I don't know. And so what do you do? You turn on the TV. And you're like, is there, is there really one out there? I don't know. You like step outside. Some people are crazy actually like go chase the storm, you know, and those folks we really need to pray for. But, but like we don't really believe it, right? The sirens, the warning sounds that are actually there, it's like, no, we need to see a little bit more. Now, when we get that substantiated, then things change, correct? I remember being at a lunch about seven years ago. It was a business lunch and a lunch meeting, and all of a sudden the storm just descended upon the restaurant. And you could see it. And, and all of a sudden, all of us that were at the table, we, we had these alerts on our phone about this tornado that was going through central Arlington. Well, James was about one year old, and he was a, a Mother's Day Out program at First Arlington. And so I just immediately canceled the lunch. I said, we're done. We need to go. And I got my car, and I, I went as fast as I could back to the church. I was literally racing the storm so that I could get my son and take him to a safer place. And, and as we found out, there was a tornado that literally just kind of bounced around UTA and First Arlington in that area. And, and the reason we reacted with such vigilance and actual transformation was why? Because we believed it to be credible. So, so the question is, when you hear about these threats, when you think about the things that are threatening your life or, or our country or even us as a church, do you take them seriously? And the answer to that question is going to be driven by whether or not you view them to be Incredible. So look at Nineveh. What does it say? Nineveh believed God. And I love that. Not they believed Jonah. Not that they believed that they had made mistakes. They believed God. They believed in his word. They believed in what he had said. Now that word belief is significant, right? It means to trust, to have confidence in Now, this is an important distinction, okay, because belief carries with it this measure of certainty and firmness, all right? They were were unwavering in their conviction, but understand that this is, there's a difference between believing in fact and, and a belief that requires faith, right? Two plus two equals four. That doesn't require a whole lot of faith because it's tangible, it's factual, you can see it, but the word that was given to them was, hey, in 40 days, this will happen. So they hadn't seen it yet. And yet they still believed it to be true. They had this firmness. They had this conviction. This is a Hebrews 11. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. They believed God with all certainty that his word would be fulfilled. Right? That's the, the, the posture of faith that you and I need to exhibit in our own lives. That's what's going to compel us towards obedience. Right? And we... We say this, this is what's a really interesting part of this word is that we try to practice this, but I would, I would say we've lost the significance of it and we've, we've kind of transformed it into a ritual because a derivative of this word that we have here is the word amen. Amen, which obviously got added to prayers, which is a way for those that pray to exhibit their certainty and their assurance in the one to whom they were praying. Amen. Amen it's a gesture of a resolve of faith and certainty and belief not just a farewell to a prayer and we've lost that sense of it so so it's a matter of them believing god so here's my question to you this morning do you really believe him do you believe like like let's think about this for a minute y'all seriously this book here that we come in and we sit in and listen to every week listen it's either real and true or it's not there's really nowhere in between. And it's not enough just to pick and choose the parts that we like. And so, okay, well, I'll put my faith in those parts, but I'm just going to gloss over and ignore the others. That, that's not sufficient. That's not belief. It's either real or it's not. Do you believe it? Do you believe what he says is going to happen? Do you believe in what he's calling you to do? Do you believe in the life that he's asked you to live? And how would you answer that question, not just when a pastor asks you it on a Sunday morning, but do you believe it on Monday? Do you believe it on Thursday when work is stressful or your friends are putting pressure on you? Do you believe it on Saturday when there's all these temptations? Do you believe it in the good times when successes are coming in? Do you you believe that you can trust him with your finances and your success and your material wealth when things are difficult and things are challenging? When you're going through those hardships and those trials and those tribulations, do you believe that he can get you through? Do you really believe him? Do you view him to be credible? That's the question. That's going to be what dictates our measure of obedience. And that's the one that we need to resolve today. Now, now here's a small, tangible way to express that obedience that we see from Nineveh. Because, again, they're having to exercise that belief, that obedience, in the midst of the waiting. And so how do they do it? Well, here's what they do. They declare a fast for all people, from the greatest to the least, and they put on sackcloth. Now, I love this, and I want to use this as our application for the message today. Right? There are a lot of different ways in which we could exercise our belief right? and, and our obedience in the midst of waiting. There's a lot of different ways that you could do it, but there's a, a practical example that's been given to us here in this chapter. And I want, to, I want to look into that for a little bit here. Now, part of what we see in this discussion is this call towards a fast, right? Now, a fast is is pretty simple, right? It means to abstain from food for ceremonial reasons, for religious reasons, right? And, and we see that exhibited numerous ways throughout the scriptures. Now, um, a fast in particular is meant to engage the full body experience before the Lord. One of the things that you and I wrestle with is that we tend to reduce our relationship with Christ to a very heart and soul sort of expression and so it's all about our soul it's all about our heart and we lose the way in which we use our bodies to glorify him as well and so what fasting does is that we talked about this almost a year ago when we first talked about fasting here is it allows us to engage our whole body into an expression and craving towards obedience now this is complemented and taken to an even further extreme when it says they put on sackcloth and i love this because obviously what we wear sends a message. Correct. Like, your, your clothes communicate some sort of message. Right, what I'm wearing today sends a message. If you found me on Friday or Saturday, this is not what I would be wearing, right? Because I'm, I'm doing something different in those points in time. But, but on a day like today, this is what I wear, right? Well, it was the same in the Old Testament scriptures, right? That if you were a king, if you were of royalty, if you were a priest, you changed clothes as you entered in the Holy of Holies. What you wear sends a message. So they would put on sackcloth. Now sackcloth was a material that was made from goat's hair and was designed to be uncomfortable. So they would wear it as a sign, oftentimes for mourning or fasting, and it was an expression of saying, I, I desire this off of me. Right? This creates discomfort. So the, the cravings that they are having for food and the cravings they're having to have this, this sackcloth taken off of them is a way for them to engage their whole body to yearn for the Lord to set them free from what they're going through. Whether it's grief, whether it's sin, whatever it is. And so this is a full body experience to repent for God to give them the rescue that they long for. So you turn through the pages of the scriptures, people will fast for mourning. They'll fast for those that are sick, for significant decisions, for an awareness of sin. You see individuals fast on behalf of a nation like Daniel. And then in this particular instance, you see a nation come and fast together craving for the Lord's rescue as a sign of obedience in the midst of waiting. I'm going to repent, though I don't know for sure if you're going to rescue me and save me. I'm going to go ahead and be obedient and believe in your word while I wait. And he does it with full commitment, body, mind, and soul. And so what I'm going to ask us to do is to follow their example. Uh, what was it about a year ago It was probably a little bit more than a year ago We talked about fasting and I asked everyone in this church to commit to setting aside at least one day a month for prayer and fasting one day a month So that whenever that day came up in that month that you would set it aside to pray and fast And we had everybody sign up on the big bulletin board there in the main hallway We've got another way for you to sign up today It's in the corner uh, of this hallway right as you leave the sanctuary And you can sign up for either a specific date you can choose a specific day of the week if you want it to be the first Monday of every month or the second Thursday, however you can best do it. But we want you to sign your name and commit to that today. And there's a little table that's going to have a few sheets of paper where if you want a word of encouragement, if you want us to send you an email or a text notification with just a word of encouragement saying, hey, we're praying for you while you're fasting today or something like that, then, then give us that information so we can send that encouragement. The idea is that then, through the course of a month, and really by extension the whole year, you've got five, six, seven people, however many, that are consistently praying and fasting as a part of our church. It's this unbroken chain of prayer and fasting as a church body. So I want you to commit to that today. If you're not ready to commit to it, then then you can do it next week. We'll leave it up for a week or two. But I want you to commit to this sort of response. It's a way in which we can express our obedience in the midst of the waiting. And everyone should do it, right? All people greatest to the least, young and old, teach them to do it. Now, I would encourage you to fast from food. I really would. But I understand not everybody's going to be able to do that. So if you need to fast from something else, choose something that evokes that same sort of reaction physically. But let's do that. And here's, here's what I'm going to give you. I want to give you a point of focus for the fasting. Right? Now, if you need to fast for something specific to your own personal life, uh, if there's something else, go for it. But for at least the next month, there's something that the Lord has laid on my heart. And this is not the end of it. This is just probably the first step towards it. But I want to share it with you. I want you to pray and fast for the church. And I don't mean UBC. I just mean the church. A couple weeks ago, I had just heard one too many stories of people that have been wounded by the church. In significant ways that had led them to, to run away from it and leave it. And I just recognized how much wrong we've done and how many wounds the church has exacted on other people. And we find ourselves in this culture right now that is so quick to rise up and say what we defend and sign petitions and all these other things. And listen, I don't want to compromise doctrinal integrity ever, and we won't. But my sense is that the church needs to repent for its failings. My sense is that more than the culture needs to hear us rise up with with animosity and hostility, it might be good for the culture to hear a voice that just says, I'm sorry. Whether you had anything to do with it or not, sorry you've been wounded. You know what, you can apologize without compromising your doctrinal integrity. And so maybe that's what we need to do. And so I would ask you that as you pray and fast this next month, that you would do so on behalf of the church, just like Nineveh did. That we would all together say, "We." We are apologizing for the failings of the church, the wounds that we have exhibited towards others, and ask for God to lead us towards repentance. That's what I want us to be our focus. Let me close with this. Let me give you the reason that I think it's so important, because part of the reason for waiting is trusting that God's promises will be fulfilled, right, that there's a hope. There's a hope that we cling to, right? There's a hope that the Ninevites exhibited. There was a hope and a mercy that Jonah himself experienced that there will lead to this transformation, that this rescue will find its fulfillment sooner or later. Though it may take a while, though we may wait, we know that it is true. We know that it is secure. Our ultimate waiting, the most powerful prayer we can ever pray is, Lord Jesus, come quickly. As we long for That new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, where we get to be with Him forever and we're finally home. And in order to bring that promise to greater clarity, let me just remind you of the promises that God extends through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61. In a similar token, we will take whatever robes of sackcloth, whether it's a metaphor or literal, and we will be reclothed according to His glory because our destiny. The promises that he's extended before us is that he would send us as the church to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn so that we ourselves, along with them, could have a beauty of crown, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair, that we would all be called oaks of righteousness, a planning for the Lord for the display of of His splendor. For our destiny, church, and our plea, our hope, is that all of us would delight greatly in In the Lord that our souls would rejoice in our God for he has clothed us with garments of salvation and arrayed us in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow. So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is what we wait for. This is our call towards obedience. So may we be obedient, even in the waiting. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we are so grateful for all that you've done for us. And we ask that you would lead us towards repentance, that you would lead us as a church, both as individuals and as as a body believers, to understand the ways in which we have wronged others, the ways in which our rebellion and our failures have, have inflicted wounds on those that have been hurt, and that you would give us the words and give us the posture we need to repent and show kindness and mercy, that we would be recipients of that same mercy that others need to experience themselves. Father, for those of us that are hurting as individuals, we pray that you would again rescue us, even if we have to wait, in the midst of the darkness and in the midst of the storm that you would lead us out and bring us to the rescue that you have in store for us. We're grateful for the example that you give us through Jonah. May it stir us now and may we forever be found faithful and obedient to you. In Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.